literally, I came on stage with a Christmas tree and then I proceeded not to talk about it. More Wiser Podcast. Phil Wagnall, Presentation Specialist. So, Phil, I want to start with a quote of yours because I think you put it perfectly what most people are feeling, especially at work. Uh, Quote, most presentations suck. And I mean really suck. They suck big time. And when I heard that, I thought, now there's a guy who gets it. How did we get here? Have they sucked forever? Or is this a new... Uh, is this a new development with technology that we just have kind of given up on presentations? It's an interesting question, and the answer is probably a long one. Uh, I think if we look back in history, we think back to great orators, the likes of Cicero back in ancient Rome, etc. And there are great speakers who we hear about because their speeches were written down and because, well, they were pretty good. What we don't hear about is the vast majority, which weren't. And I think that we can probably have too much nostalgia for the old times. We look back 150 or more years to the Gettysburg Address and we think, okay, well, that was a great speech. And what we don't think about is all of the hundreds, if not thousands of other political speeches done around about the same time, which we don't remember anymore because they weren't so great. So there is a danger in being too nostalgic and thinking the good old days, we used to be able to present much better. Uh, I think that we don't have that many great examples of communication throughout the ages. Uh, What I do know, and I'm pretty certain about this, is that PowerPoint has polluted our communication. Sometimes in my classes, I will ask whether anyone remembers the old overhead projectors, right? You remember these things where they projected light upwards through a transparent sheet, which then had some writing or a diagram or something on it. And then that would be reflected onto some kind of screen. Um, And generally when some people put their hand up, then I realized those are the senior members of the audience. But way back when, in the 80s and the early 90s, when we didn't have PowerPoint, and we didn't have PC projectors, we had the overhead projectors. And it was a real pain to have to produce those slides because either you'd write them live in front of your audience, and that was actually pretty boring for most people, or uh, you'd prepare them in advance and then you would just pick them up and put them onto the, the, the overhead projector and then you'd take them off when they were done. And what's interesting is you'd take them off when you didn't need them anymore and you'd switch the machine off because it was generating an awful lot of light and an awful lot of heat and we didn't always need it. But the whole point is it was a lot of effort to produce those slides and therefore we only produced the ones we really needed in order to make our points. We didn't have this whole idea that I need to have something visual on the screen at all times. And then PowerPoint And the projector came along and suddenly it was possible to produce a whole lot of slides with very little effort. And so that's exactly what people ended up doing, producing a whole lot of slides and not putting very much effort into it. Um, And nowadays when people say, have you prepared your presentation? What they really mean is, have you done your slides? Whereas presentations often don't need slides. And I speak as somebody who had more than 50 in my own TED talk, but there are times when I'm working with a speaker for a TED or a TEDx event, and I will simply say to them, this story is great. It really doesn't need slides. And 
that's almost revolutionary nowadays, this idea that slides are not really always necessary. Yeah, and gosh, that is so spot on. Have you finished your presentation? It's where's your slide deck, you know, how filled in is stuff. Are we used to it now, though? I mean, it it feels like if I'm in a presentation and there's nothing to look at, I go, what am I going to look at this? this man or woman for, you know, a minute while they talk, it's almost weird to not have a resting place for your eyeballs. Have we trained ourselves, especially in this social media world to, to need something to fixate on like a pacifier almost? I think that's a very fair point. And a lot of people do indeed want that. What's interesting is also there are a lot of speakers who want that because they don't want all those eyeballs to be on them. Whereas a confident, comfortable speaker should want the audience to be looking at them as much as possible. And they should be using facial and hand gestures as much as possible to give some kind of uh, color uh, and some kind of depth to what they're saying. If you're not able to do that, then it's almost like somebody's reading the telephone directory. And if that's the case, well, it's perfectly normal that we don't want to be seeing them. We want to be looking at something else. Um, You'd also see a lot of speakers who don't want to be looking at the audience, and they end up spending most of their time looking at their own slides. Ooh, yeah, that's bad. That's a bad thing. You definitely don't want to be doing that in any kind of presentation. Uh, The number one in all of the polls, all of the surveys about what people hate about presentations is the speaker is reading their slides. Now, that's a lack of preparation, right, essentially? It's sometimes a lack of preparation. Sometimes it's because the speaker doesn't know what what is on their slides and what they're supposed to be saying. Sometimes they do know what's on their slide, but they haven't thought about what to say. So their default presentation modus operandi is, I am going to turn my back on the audience. I will read my slides. I will read each bullet point, and then I will improvise for a while before I get on to the next one. And that's not what I would call strong preparation for a presentation, and it's not a great experience for the audience. In fact, that's what Jeff Bezos of Amazon used to say, all these bullet points, it's easy for the presenter, it's not easy for the audience. And I firmly believe that any presentation you ever produce is a gift for the audience. So make it easy on them, and then they'll make it easy on you. And it, the bullet points, it's funny you say that because as I've, I've watched your TED Talk and other speaking engagements you've had, I can't help but think sometimes at work, it feels like I have to use bullets or I have to, I have to convey information that's not interesting at all, like financial data. And I'm, I want to get your take on how do you make those more engaging? Because, you know, not everyone's given a TED Talk. It's incredible to be able to speak like that on an idea and you, you know, you kind of make the rules, but like in the corporate world, what's your advice to folks when, you know, Hey, you're going to make this presentation and, uh, and it's got a lot of numbers and data in it. I would answer to that, that you're never there to present data. You're there to present the message behind the numbers and the actions or changes in behavior that you want to be putting forward to your audience. So, Yes, sure, you've got some numbers to to share. Great, but why? Always ask yourself why. Why am I why am I sharing these numbers? Oh, because I've been told to, or because it's the quarterly business review and I have to share numbers. Okay, great. Could that be shared better in the form of a written document? 
Because reading a whole lot of numbers on a screen is actually not very easy. Reading them on a piece of paper is sometimes better. So in some cases, I have had situations with companies where they've said, look, we've got this template we have to fill in for our quarterly business review, and we need to send it a week in advance of the meeting with our chief financial officer. And every division has to do the same. So you don't have freedom to use your own style or do your nice uh, nice visuals or, or whatever. You've got to follow that template because they expect to see all of the numbers in exactly the same place from all of the divisions. And I will say to them, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just it's a document. It's not slides. And this is a fundamental thing that he, people need to get their head around is that Successful documents make bad slides, and successful slides make bad documents. These are two very different animals. So if you're sending this basically 20-page, very detailed document a week in advance, what you don't want to do is when you get into the meeting, then project it on the screen or share it on your teams or whatever, and then run through it page by page, because that's not a very good way of communicating what you should instead be doing. And this is what I did with this company that was complaining, hey, we've got this template we need to fill in. I said, sure, fill in the template. And then when it comes to the meeting, simply have a four-point agenda. First point, now that you've read the document, here are the highlights that we think we'd really like to make sure are front and center of your mind in the, uh, in the corporate team. Second, here are the questions we would like to ask you or the matters we would like to raise with you. Third point, out of what you've read, what are the points you would like to raise or discuss with us? Fourth point, any other business. And frankly, that is an agenda for a meeting, not necessarily a presentation. And I firmly believe you should never pollute a meeting with an unnecessary presentation. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. But then the other question I have is, you know, sometimes you present and unfortunately your slides live on beyond you, right? They get passed around and you're not there with the voice track. So are there things you can do to help yourself out to, to make it more easily digest or should, or is in your opinion, never do that. Don't share slides without the person speaking with them. Well, it's true that if you're going to use slides as visual aids to illustrate an oral presentation, then those slides really shouldn't be living independently of that oral presentation. If you don't have the, the speech that it was illustrating, then it's almost like you're watching a movie without the subtitles and with the sound off. You're not going to get very much out of it. And although I know that people will say, well, just send me a copy of your, of your slides and that will be kind of a, a trace of the communication or a proof that these points were communicated. Well, very often, if those slides have so much on them that they can be standalone, then it's probably proof of poor communication because they probably didn't get what it was you were saying because during the meeting they were too busy reading uh, and they can't read that while also listening to you. So, what I would tend to say in a situation like that, where you know that people are going to want a copy of the slides and you really want to make sure that the message goes together with the illustration, then I would simply use the PowerPoint presenter notes function. You put what you're saying into the presenter notes and instead of sharing the PowerPoint file, you print the notes to, to a PDF. And that way you've got the uh, slide at the top of the page and then you've got your notes underneath it. 
And that way they receive the PDF. Sure, they have the illustration with the graph or the, the pictures or whatever it is you're saying, but they also have the message. So then there's no excuse for messages getting lost. Uh, and we've done that in various companies where they needed to be what's called cascading communication, where the head of a department or a division is going to be making a presentation that they know that each N minus one is then going to have to make to their teams and then on down. So in order to produce that, sure, then you, you'd use that function in PowerPoint um, and also make sure that it's clear how they should be using it and how they should be personalizing it because the N minus three is not going to deliver that presentation to their team in the same way that the, uh, the chief financial officer would have pre presented it to their uh, leadership team. So there's a lot that can be done and Sometimes it's a lot of common sense. I sometimes think a lot of the stuff I say about presentations, it's really not rocket science. But we've just forgotten a lot of that common sense because we've been conditioned to think PowerPoint is everything. The PowerPoint is my communication and bullet points are good. None of those are true. Is part of the problem, I don't know if it's a problem, but, you know, 2000 years ago, clearly not social media, not electricity, anything like that. So attention spans were longer. They're considerably shorter today, even over the past, you know, as you were saying, of 50 years, you know, it's changed a lot. How important is it to stay up to date with, you know, the, I guess the science behind how long people can hold their attention on a certain topic or issue? How do you form your message and your your communication style to to impact people how they're used to receiving information? I think the duration of attention is an interesting question, and there is no definitive science on that one as to how long people actually will pay attention for. Uh, there are some studies which will say, 18 minutes, then after that, people will uh, people's attention will start to drop. I think that came from the uh, U.S. Navy in the 1970s. Um, that's not the reason that TED chose 18 minutes, by the way. That's an interesting one. TED initially started with asking their speakers to be around about 20 minutes back in the 1980s. And then they realized that people thought around about 20 minutes, then that means 25 is probably okay then. Uh, and people were taking liberties. Uh, and what they then decided, well, well let, let's just go for 18. And people seeing 18 minutes thought, that's curiously specific. Maybe I really need to stick to 18, whereas 20 was seen as to be more of a guideline. So that's how they got to, to 18. And it worked very well for a long time. And when I started getting into TED and TEDx Talks back in uh, 20, 2010, uh, 18 minutes indeed seemed to be short. Nowadays, it's long. And right now we're speaking in 2023, as I'm preparing a lot of uh, TEDx speakers, we're aiming for around about the 12 minute mark. And in some cases, that's also too long. But how long is too long when it comes to attention? Uh, I think Gar Reynolds said it best, where he said that people's attention for something they find boring is practically zero. But their attention for something they find fascinating can be practically unlimited. Um, and in his fantastic book, uh, Brain Rules, Dr. John Medina uh, made the point that when he's teaching, he will split everything up into 10-minute, kind of bite-sized chunks, 10-minute sections. And after 10 minutes, he will do something to reset people's attention. 
like showing a video or doing some kind of exercise or having them stand up or whatever it might be, but something to reset their attention. Um, and he won prizes for his teaching. That works really well. So even if your subject is fascinating and you speak really well about it, you've got to assume that sooner or later people will switch off and it's up to you to make the effort to reset their attention. It's not up to them to make the effort to keep listening. Right. And then I think the follow-up to that is, is there a best time of day to present? Because I kind of feel like in the morning, people are awake, they're engaged. And if you hit them after lunch, I mean, all bets are off as to how engaged they're going to be. I've been in meetings, people are falling asleep. So um, clearly that was not a good presentation. But what do you find to be the sweet spot in the day or does it not really matter to you? That's an interesting one because at business schools, they usually put me on at the end of the day, but I'll tell you why that is in just a moment. Um, It is true that physiologically after lunch, what we're doing is we're digesting. And when people are digesting, that is taking a lot of their energy available and therefore they have much less energy available for their brain in order to be listening and trying to take in new things. So the morning for me, is a better time to be giving them new information. And in fact, I was just having a a discussion with a a school teacher uh, just a couple of days ago uh, who was also making this point, saying that in some countries, they will start early in the morning, they will do lessons in the morning, they'll learn the, the key skills early in the day, and then in the afternoon, they don't even bother trying to teach the new stuff. What they will instead be doing is activities, where standing up type activities, sports, things like that, which makes so much more sense, especially for, for a growing brain. Um, but it is also possible to be fascinating at any time of day. It's just bear in mind in the early afternoon, what you really need people to be doing is standing. So I will always structure my training courses. If I have it like a full day training course, then there is no right time or wrong time because I've got the whole day. So I will try to make sure that straight after lunch, early afternoon, people are standing around a board, around a flip chart and actually doing something as opposed to sitting and listening to me drone on about presentations. The reason that I often present at the end of the day, however, at uh, business schools is where I've got like a class that's maybe one, two hours. Uh, they don't seem to want to put anybody on straight after me. So... They put me towards the end of the day, and I think that kills two birds with one stone. One, it means that nobody has to go on after the communication specialist. Um, And the other thing is, at the end of the day, usually people are really, really, really tired after a long day of management accounting, um, and at least they can rely on me to get through something which will wake them up before dinner. So there is always a way to do it. It's just you adapt your teaching, you adapt your communication to the time of day, as opposed to simply saying, I have to do this at this, uh, at nine o'clock in the morning. For interviews, I always, for some reason, think in the morning, you got a better chance in the afternoon because the person listening might not be engaged. But if you're a talented speaker and a good salesman for yourself, it it shouldn't matter when your interview is. So the, the other thing I wanted to ask you, and I don't know if you got this, but when I told people I was giving a Ted talk, they kept asking me how my speech was going. What's the difference? If someone says, I'm, I, I need to give a speech, do you first pause and go, do you really have to give a speech? Or there seems to be a disconnect there. I guess we can get into a lot of semantics about what is a speech, what is a presentation, what is a pitch, etc. cetera. Um, well, for me, first of all, a presentation is not always something with PowerPoint. 
I, I like what Gar Reynolds had on the front of Presentation Zen, where it says, with or without slides. Um, and for me, the presentation is the act of communication to one or to many people. And you can split that into what you say, which I would tend to call the speech or in some cases, the storyline, um, and then the slides or the illustrations or, or, or what have you. Um, I think that the fact that PowerPoint decided that when you create a slide deck using PowerPoint, the file is called a presentation, I actually find that really disappointing and misleading. I really wish they hadn't done that. Okay, you produce something in Microsoft Excel. Yes, it's going to be called a spreadsheet or something or a workbook. Or, but what you're producing in PowerPoint is a slide deck. It is visual aids for your audience, or potentially it is a document. It can be a document, but it's not the presentation. The presentation is the act of oral communication, live communication with several people. Um, and then, so speech does sound a very old fashioned. So I'm, I'm actually a little bit surprised that you had that, uh, uh, those people saying, how is your speech going? Uh, but I can, to some extent, understand it. Um, but yeah, what you're saying is the speech, what you're showing is the slides, and then there is the speaker that goes with it. Um, I guess we all have different definitions of these things, but I always make sure at the beginning of my training courses that I'm very clear at least that presentation does not mean slides, and good presentations can be without slides. And at what point, because you just said the, you know, the, the words coming out of your mouth are the most important thing. You don't need slides. You know... <sighs> I see holograms, you know, I see the, the Biggie Smalls concert of him being projected on screen or on stage, excuse me. And I, I just, you know, we've been in this PowerPoint rut for a while. Where do you see the next bifurcation coming? Do you think eventually you'll have some sort of computer generated being next to you or like, uh, I mean, how far do you think technology is going to go? And when do you think we're going to have to start incorporating the next set? And have you started planning for that? Technology is always advancing. There is no doubt about that. Uh, the technology around avatars or virtual avatars is certainly close to being there and ready for uh, companies to use. Uh, there will be a budget for it, but I believe that we will see a time very soon where uh, the budget for uh effectively being in some kind of simulator using perhaps a virtual reality headset where we don't need to leave our office, but we can effectively be in a meeting room with people from different countries around the world. Um, it'll have a cost, but it'll be lower than the associated travel cost. And therefore, I think there will be uh, probably a good market for this. Um, and we've started at Ideas on Stage, we've started experimenting with virtual reality technology. We've been working with a couple of startups which have uh, virtual reality applications where, at least for speaker coaching, you put on your, your headset and then you are transported in front of an audience. And that audience is a sentient audience. In fact, there is a, a controller on their application who, depending on what you're saying and how you're saying it and how well you're doing and whether you're looking at each part of the audience, the audience can get restless or they can be really interested or they can start to grumble or whatever. Um, and it's a really good experience for people to practice a talk in front of this kind of virtual audience, even before getting on stage in front of an amphitheater. Um, now, I believe it's only going to be a matter of time before 
Whereas today we're doing an awful lot of meetings on Zoom or on Teams or whatever, uh, where in fact we're going to be doing that not using a computer screen, but using a virtual reality headset where we're actually going to be in the room with people, but virtually. I, I think that time is probably quite close. Where that goes in the future, I don't know. But what I will say is that I also think, and I think we've seen this over the last three years since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, is that there will be a reaction against this. And whereas you will see a lot of people embracing the technology for a lot of their meetings, as soon as people have a chance to actually go out and meet people and see people and shake hands and have a beer with people, they will jump at the opportunity. I just think that probably we will find that most meetings end up continuing to be online and those few times where we can actually get in a room, where we can get into an auditorium and see people on stage, where we can actually be in an off-site meeting and seeing three-dimensional people, but real in the flesh people, uh, people will definitely still want that because the level of human connection is just unparalleled. And I agree. And it, there's such a difference between meeting people meeting with people in person versus online or Zoom. But I, I want to go back to the the virtual reality headsets you have. And I the first thought I had was, you know, you said the the speaker will, you know, give their presentation and then the audience will react. Did you develop the like the algorithms of how people react? Because I, I mean, you have to understand how to present, but you also have to understand how people perceive and and take in and absorb your messaging. So who created how the audience is interacting in that virtual world? That's so interesting to me. Well, in the versions that we've used so far, it's actually manually controlled by a, an application controller who's listening to the person and thinking, yeah, they're a little bit monotonous, so I'm going to make sure the audience is a little bit. But it's only a matter of time before there is some kind of AI-enabled algorithm where the AI is listening to the speaker and thinking there's not much vocal variation there or, well, they haven't looked at this part of the audience for a while. They're kind of shutting that, that part out because they're always looking over this side. So therefore, the people that aren't getting any speaker engagement, they're going to start to switch off a bit. At the moment, it's all manually controlled. It's only a matter of time before AI will be doing that. And then I think we will really see uh, some leapfrog technology in terms of the speaker coaching. And I'm going to be really interested with whoever comes up with that algorithm, because I hear some speakers uh, you know, give their presentation and they just have charisma. There's just something about the way they're speaking that I'm engaged. I mean, I was watching somebody on YouTube the other day tell me how to put up drywall and I couldn't get enough of it. I watched three more you know, videos of the guy and it's just, I feel like it's something you can't teach, but maybe I'm wrong. Charisma, is it you got it or you don't, or can it be learned? It's a lot easier for some people than it is for others. There's no doubt about that. I mean, over the last 13 years, I worked with literally thousands of speakers at all sites, all kinds of events, and all different people in different types of people in different companies and different functions. And I've never yet met anybody who didn't have the potential to become a really engaging speaker. But it's certainly true that for some people, it's easier than others. I mean, we all know the person, we all know somebody who just can't tell a joke. Well, I've had people like that who literally can't tell a joke. And the key thing with those people is 
don't try to turn them into some kind of onstage comic. They are not Chris Rock. They're never going to be. Um, but they can be a powerful, serious speaker in their own way if they learn to give power to each syllable they give, that they learn to use pauses appropriately, and they learn some kind of vocal variation in order to make sure that people are listening to not just something which is extremely monotonous all the time, but something that vocally is engaging. And that can be taught. That most certainly can be taught. Sometimes it takes time, but it can be taught. And as you say that, I think, you know, I've heard really incredible stories told to me and gosh, it was so boring. And the thing that happened to them was incredible. Like the, you know, they did something so amazing, but the way it was conveyed back with a lack of inflection, with a lack of, you know, variation in their voice, it just was so boring. So you talk a lot about storytelling for anybody. I mean, whether you're given a presentation or not, how do you actually tell a good story? Cause gosh, like charisma, it just feels like some people have all the stories and they could captivate you with how they went to the grocery store the other day and some don't. How do you effectively tell a story? I like to split it into the story and the telling. And the telling, we've just spoken about that there in terms of making sure you've got some vocal variation and making sure that also that you've got passion for it. Uh, because if you don't sound convinced or passionate about what you're saying, well, they're not going to sound convinced or passionate about it either. Um, and it's also about your own level of comfort in terms of delivering it, meaning you know what you're saying, you know what's going to come next, you've been through this several times before, and you're, you're feeling at ease, you're feeling serene, because in that situation, you'll deliver your best performance. But a lot of it comes down to the story itself and how that story is structured. And sometimes people will put in way too much detail. I know a guy who will tell stories and his voice is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it, it sounds as if it's interesting. It's just you always thinking, when's he going to get to the point? Because it just goes on too long. Um, and so it's important within when, when you're preparing what you're going to say to make sure that you're getting to the point quickly, but also giving them things which are worth listening to in each sentence. Another thing to bear in mind is to split it into short sentences, because if you want to be telling a story, short sentences are powerful. Long sentences just aren't. If people have forgotten what the beginning of the sentence was before you reach the end, well, then that sentence is too long. So storytelling is not just about writing it down and then finding a way to, to, to say it, because you'll probably be writing long sentences with potentially like brackets, parentheses. You might even have semicolons and colons. You don't have that in an oral register. So it's important to write it the way you would say it. Um, another key thing to build into stories is concrete detail. Because we can't imagine something if there is nothing concrete there. Sometimes I'll tell a story uh, in class. I actually ask people to close their eyes while I'm telling a story just to illustrate this point that we can't, uh, that firstly, our brain fills in details if it wants to. And secondly, that uh, the details in stories are important. And, and so I'll tell them a story about a cat 
and what happened to a cat when it found a bird and the the cat was chasing the bird around the bedroom and blah 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 blah. Um, and it was like two o'clock in the morning, but it was it was warm because the windows were open and so the bird was able to get in and the cat chased it around and etc etc etc. And I tell the story. Everyone in the audience has got their eyes closed. It's a bit daring to have people close their eyes in the middle of a training course, but I try and do it anyway, and they don't fall asleep. And then what happens is at the end, while they've still got their eyes closed, I will then name somebody and say, okay, what time of the day was it? And they will say it was two o'clock in the morning. And then I'll say, and uh, what what was the weather like? And they'll say, oh, it was quite warm, so the window was open. Okay, yeah. And so you'll explain that indeed, they remember the details and therefore they remember everything else. This is a good thing. And then I'll ask somebody, what color was the cat? And they'll answer, it was black or it was white or it was ginger. No, nobody will say the cat was green. Nobody will say the cat was blue. But I didn't tell them what color the cat was. And so at that point, I'll have them all open their eyes and just basically say, okay, who, who had a black cat? who had a ginger cat some other hands up it's like okay i didn't tell you what color that cat was your brain filled in the blanks and sometimes you can use this to your advantage when you're telling stories and sometimes not because you'll find that people will fill in the de- the, the blanks they'll fill in the gaps with things which are actually wrong and they might remember those as if they were fact, because the brain can't distinguish between what it thinks was fact and what was actually said. So it's very, very important to build in those concrete details, one, so that they can imagine the situation, so that they're building up this kind of visual idea in their mind of what was happening during the story, and secondly, to make sure that they're not filling in the blanks with things which actually aren't correct and therefore are distorting what you want them to remember out of the story. And when you say that, I think, you know, there've been studies done on when people witness a crime and then they go back and, you know, give their account of what happened. And often they're, they're, they're filling in pieces that weren't really there, or they might be misremembering, you know, facial features or, you know, just what the person looked like in general or how it went down. So I mean, this extends far beyond storytelling. And I think, you know, as you're teaching folks, you have to understand the way someone else's brain thinks and ingests what you're doing. It's not only you, 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 you're the speaker. It's all about you. It's about the audience. And I know you're in France. I'm in the United States right now. And so I would anticipate if you and I went to present something, we would have a bit of a different flavor if we were taking our audience into consideration just based on culture and norms, what sorts of things would you want to look out for if you were going to give a a talk right now in France versus if you came over to the United States right now or a different country? I think firstly, the, the cultural aspects are important to bear in mind. And secondly, you've got the uh, like the the news context, the political context within the country as well. Um, and it, I think, it's important if you're going to be making any kind of presentation in France at the moment. Then you need to be thinking about the very difficult uh, situation that we have between uh, the unions and most of the population versus the government who are trying to raise the age of uh, uh, of retirement. Um, and that's that's a key thing to bear in mind in the uh, in the country. Um, 
there are other things that could be important and could be relevant to your particular client. So, for example, I'm working uh, with uh, builders, so big, big building firms, and around Paris, if you're thinking about building and you're not thinking about the Paris 2024 Olympics, then you're probably missing something because that has caused an absolute shortage of labor, for example. They're all trying to, to all, all of the big uh, building firms are trying to get the, uh, the the labor they're competing with each other for it uh, there are so many projects that they're uh, the, that they're working on at the moment etc so knowing that kind of context uh, is also important but to come back to the cultural aspects uh, there are certain things which people instinctively know within a culture and other things that they don't if I were giving a talk in the US, for example, I might be thinking, if I were to use a baseball analogy there, then that might work. People might get that. So if I were to say this comes from left field, or if I were to give an example of um, a, like a, a business example of getting to first base or second base or, or whatever in terms of trying to seal a deal. Um, if I were to do that in France, it would not work because they just don't do baseball here in France. Um, so th those are some aspects, and there are different things within France, for example, that people will know uh, a lot better, uh, which Americans wouldn't, like the rules of rugby, for example. So sometimes it's about sport, sometimes it's about different things. But it's also what works well. I mean, if I were to ask you, think of a genius. Who's the first person that comes to, comes to your mind? Einstein. Exactly. So while I was wanting to, I was in Japan, I was making uh, a presentation and I was preparing it and I was thinking I need illustration, a photo of somebody representing genius. Of course, I thought of Einstein. That's what you do. Um, and then I kind of thought, but hold on, wait a minute. Einstein was involved in the production of the atomic bombs. That's probably not going to go down so well in Japan. So luckily I took that out. Now, I'm not saying the Japanese won't have respect for Albert Einstein as a as a, a, a an excellent mind, but sometimes if somebody could be perceived negatively by some of the audience, it's best to avoid using them if you can. Uh, and so sometimes there are these cultural biases that it's important to be aware of. Um, and for that, there is no substitute for talking to somebody from that country and running your presentation past them and saying, is this going to be okay? And in some cases, they might be saying, you might want to be changing that analogy or that or that line or whatever, because they won't get it. And it feels like, and I'm going to tie charts again to presentation. Don't kill me, Phil. Um, <laughs> it, it feels like no matter where you are, though, the last thing you say or the last slide or visual you have says questions and should it. That's my thought. It, it's always questions. And are we missing the boat here? Oh, there are. Um, I can't remember who it was who said this. It, may, it might have been Gar Reynolds, but he was. I, I think it was him. He was said there are, there are there are two slides that you really really don't need. The one that says thank you, and the one that says questions. Uh, you can say those things, and that's fine. Uh, however, do you need a slide that says questions? Uh, I would tend to say that's like the the picture of people shaking hands in front of the in front of a, a globe. It's like we've seen that a thousand times. We don't need to see it again. Um, I get the question a lot when we're working with uh, startups, or in some cases at business schools where people have to present a project, and then afterwards they're going to have a question and answer session. So I will ask them, what do you want to have on the screen? 
during that question and answer session, when maybe there are three of you up there in front of a jury or in front of a group of investors, what do you want to be on the screen? Is it questions with a huge, great purple question mark? Or is it the name of your startup with your tagline, with potentially a QR code that people can photograph and scan in order to get to your website or to sign up for more information? Uh, if you're presenting in front of a jury at the end of a business school project, do you want to actually have, for example, your names and photographs so that at the point when one of you is answering the question, they're not wondering now, who's this guy again? Because I have to mark these people. Uh, you at least make sure that they understand that this one's Mark and this one's Paul and this one's Sheila or whoever it might be. Uh, sometimes those are the things that you want to have on the screen. So, there are many things that you could put up there instead of questions. And frankly, if you don't need to have anything, then just put a black slide in there so that you don't have uh, anything disrupting or diluting the audience's attention so they can really listen to you. Now, that's at the end. But at the beginning, you need a hook. And I, I the hooks are hard to come up with because it's, I mean, fishing's hard. Hooking some buddy's attention, giving them something to grab onto is difficult. Have you found a good way to, um, you know, take everything you want to do and put it into a sentence or two that's going to captivate the audience? The introduction is so important. For me, there are two key points of any presentation. It's the introduction and it's the conclusion. The introduction has one purpose, and that is to make people want to listen. So, for example, for TED speakers, and I think really this goes for anyone, but in a, in a TED situation, it's even more important. You've got about 30 seconds to grab people's attention because if people are watching your talk online, then if after 30 seconds they're not hooked, they're probably going to be clicking somewhere else and watching a different talk instead. So you've got that 30 seconds to make them want to listen. And if you apply that in a business context, that's pretty good too, because if you're doing a Zoom or a Teams meeting, then a lot of people will be treating that as a great opportunity to catch up with email. So you really need to be grabbing their attention right at the start. Now, what people usually do right at the beginning of a presentation is to give them the agenda. Hello, everybody. Today, I'm here to explain X, Y, and Z. Okay, then let's get started. Except no, it's not okay because you didn't make me want to listen to all of that stuff. So what you really need to do is to grab their attention and then you can explain how you're going to spend that attention, how you're going to uh, to reward them effectively for the attention that they're giving to your talk. But how do you grab their attention at the start? Well, there are many ways of doing it. Um, and I really like the, the idea of doing something unexpected. Right? The unexpected definitely makes people prick up their ears and think, oh, I didn't see that coming. I didn't expect that. That's new. Sometimes it can be a story. Sometimes you start off with a kind of a, a personal story, ideally not a very long one, uh, but something that happened to you. It can be by, again, doing something surprising. It could be a physical action that you could do. I remember at one point I was working with uh, a TEDx speaker called uh, uh, Davy who did a, a fantastic talk. It was in French. I won't. Uh, I th don't think your audience will, will want to see it because it was in French. But he was a, a botanist and he was talking about the importance of wildflowers, which we would usually call weeds. And so he came on stage with a bouquet behind his back. 
and he said, hello, everybody. It's wonderful to be here with you today. In fact, I'm so happy and so honored to be here that I brought you flowers. Would anyone like some flowers? And then he walked down to the front row and he pulled this bouquet of nettles and dandelions and stuff from behind his back. And it's like, anyone want my flowers? And nobody wanted them. It's like, why not? Why do we hate weeds so much? And then that was the whole purpose of his talk. He grabbed our attention right at the start. So that was an interesting idea. Uh, you don't have to, I, I'm not suggesting, by the way, that anyone listening to this podcast in their next business meeting brings a whole lot of nettles or dandelions or whatever. Uh, but try and find a way to grab their attention. Sometimes it's just by promising something. It's by making a promise. So today, I'd like to share with you three tips which will help you to present better in your next presentation. And the third one is something I am sure you're absolutely going to love. It's almost like clickbait, but sometimes that's what you need at the start. I remember once I did a, a wiki talk. So this was a talk at a wiki stage, which is a kind of a, an alternative to TED, which we can talk about at some point if you like. Um, and uh, I came on stage with a Christmas tree. So literally, I came on stage with a Christmas tree and then I proceeded not to talk about it. So that was kind of the elephant in the room. It's like I'm standing there with a Christmas tree and I'm talking about something completely different. And in fact, this, this presentation was all about how to grab people's attention, how to make people curious, particularly in the introduction to a talk. And I got about halfway through the talk uh, and then I said, now, some of you are probably wondering why exactly I came on stage with a Christmas tree. And indeed, the audience was like, yeah, indeed. And the whole point there was they were all listening attentively to find out when I was going to start talking about the tree. And at that point, I then used the analogy, uh, which was you can't plant a tree unless you first dig a hole. You can't plant a message in people's minds unless you first dig a hole in their brain and make them realize, I don't know that. I wish I did. I'm going to listen so that I can fill that in. So you've got to generate that curiosity. That's probably the step before the hook then. The real hook is online. What's the title, right? The, the title of the talk. What's the title of the email? What's this meeting about? How do you come up with a short way to grab someone's attention before you even get a chance to grab their attention? I always tell speakers that the title of their talk is one of the three key moments of TED or the three key uh, points that they've got to succeed in. That is the first, because if nobody clicks on it, then it doesn't matter how good your talk was because no one's listening to it. Uh, so you've got to make sure they want to click. The second one is, as I said earlier, the first 30 seconds. If after 30 seconds, they've watched that first 30 seconds, do they want to keep watching? That's your second moment of truth. And then the third one is at the conclusion, do they think, hmm, that was good? Or do they think, oh, that was so good, I need to share that? Because it's only when they really feel they need to share it that it has a chance of, as we say, going viral or getting seen by a lot of people. That can be the difference between one view of somebody who read, who watches it to the end and a thousand views because they've shared it with their communities on Instagram or on Facebook or, or wherever it might be. Now, coming back to that title, how do you create that catchy title that is really going to make people want to click and watch. Um, and this is where, to some extent, it's almost like we're in marketing and we're in advertising. And uh, it needs to be a promise that 
you click on this, you're going to get something that is interesting to you. I think the mistake a lot of people make when they're preparing the title of their talk or what's going to be the the, the, the tagline that's available on YouTube or TED.com is that they try to please everybody. They try to do something which will be universally appealing. And the problem is if it's if it has the same appeal to everybody, then that level of appeal to them might not actually be high enough that they want to click on it. What you want to be is extremely appealing to your target audience. And I know it's hard to say for some people, but your target audience is not everybody. So if you can be extremely appealing to that target, then that's great. So first, the key thing is to think, who am I writing this title for? What will make them interested in watching it? And then ideally, you need to then think, okay, maybe I need to modify my talk. Maybe I need to think, actually, what I was planning on saying, you know what? Not enough people would click on that, no matter how appealing I make it. Maybe I need to be preparing my talk in a slightly different way so that people will want to click on it. And what's the correlation to email subjects, because I feel like they're tied at the hip and you see an email, uh, it's either too verbose or very vague and you go, this one isn't for me. I mean, is there the same type of skill and in emails writing and sending that we should be applying here to grab people's attention? Yeah, I think that it's, Indeed, as you said, joined it at the hip. I think it's very, very similar. I mean, we always try to wrestle with this idea when we're sending out our monthly presentation tips newsletter. It's how do we make sure that people actually want to click on that email and open it? Because we all get bombarded with emails. Uh, how do you make people want to do that? And really, it's a question of what are the motivators that will make people want to do this? It's like clicking on this email is going to cost me time. What's the return on that investment? So you need to be making them think, hmm, there could be a good return on that investment. Either I'm going to enjoy reading this, or I'm going to learn something reading this, or I'm going to miss out if I don't read this. So I think you're absolutely right with that. But indeed, the one difference when thinking about emails is that email titles tend to get truncated, which is that when seeing in the inbox view, for example, on your phone or in certain mail apps, then you will only see the first couple dozen characters of the title of the email. And then like a, a three dots or three, three periods, which will then effectively say, okay, the title is longer than this, but I'm not going to show it to you unless you click on it. And so this is where it's very important to make sure your title is not too long and that if it were to get truncated, that it wouldn't look bad. I had an example of this. Now, you need to know that the in French, so we work in French as well as in English and, and other languages too, but in French, there is a word, uh, the word, um, I, I guess you know, I can use that, con, C-O-N. Now, that is not a con as we would say it in English, uh, but it basically means dumb, although it's a little bit stronger than just saying that's dumb. Um, so... What you don't want is to have a title which includes the word conference, which could get truncated at that point. Because we did have at one point an email title which had that, which had uh, conference, because that's the same word in French, conference, uh, and which got translated into C-O-N 
dot, dot, dot. And the, the meaning was just completely different. Luckily, we beat a test. We check it before we send it out to thousands of people. <laughs> and we caught that. And it was like, we really don't want that to happen again. But that's really for email titles. It's not such a problem, I believe, on YouTube. And then there's a longstanding belief when you're speaking in front of people that you really have to hit them over the head with a sledgehammer for them to retain what you're telling them, right? There's the three times method. You're going to tell them what you're going to tell them. You tell them and then you tell them what you just told them. And is there any merit to this? Should we just completely flush this out of our minds? I'd never know how often to restate what I'm saying in a presentation. I think it was many years ago, I believe it was Sam Goldwyn from Hollywood who said, what I say three times is the truth. I think actually it first came from the English writer Lewis Carroll. Um, but it is true that if you say something once, people will probably forget it. If you say it twice, they might remember. If you say it three times, then they probably will remember. They might also resent you for repeating it so many times. Now, I've got an analogy that I like to share on this, and it's an analogy of Microsoft Windows. So I will, and I'll share this with you now. I think your, your listeners might enjoy this one. You need to assume that everybody's brain is like Microsoft Windows in some ways. This doesn't mean that it has bugs and needs to be rebooted every now and again. What it means is that when you listen to something, you assume that if your brain is Microsoft Windows, that you're storing what you're hearing into the documents of your brain, right? That's a wrong assumption because like Windows, your brain also has the recycle bin or trash. That's where it's storing most of the stuff that you hear. Now, that trash or that recycle bin has two important aspects to bear in mind. The first aspect is you can't search inside it. So this is the tip of the tongue. It's like, I know I heard that. What was it? Oh, gosh. And because it's in the recycle bin, you can't search inside there. You might get lucky. You might not. Right? And so I will I will do this exercise with people. I will tell them the, the five key success factors of great, of great presentations. Simple, clear, original, related, enjoyable. And I will take maybe 10 minutes with some nice visuals, with some examples, explaining all of those things. Then we have a break. Then straight after the break, I will ask them to close, my, close their eyes and find out whether anybody can remember them. So I will ask them, if you can remember the five key success factors of great presentations, put up your hand now. And usually after, out of about 30 people, we have maybe two hands. Because they're always thinking, oh, God, I can't remember the R. What was uh, They remember that it was simple, clear, original, related, enjoyable, score. They remember score sometimes because that struck out. It's like, oh, there's a nice acronym there. But they're thinking, oh, what was the O again? Ah. And so maybe there's one or two hands out of 30 people that will shoot up. And then I will say to them, okay, now, the person who put their hand up first, can you tell us what they were? And then they'll say simple, clear, original, related, enjoyable. And everyone else is thinking, right, that's what it was. The R was related. And what they're then realizing is it was in their recycle bin, in their brain all the time. They just couldn't search inside it. And therefore, when you hear something again, which is in that recycle bin, your brain will then think, oh, that was useful. Maybe I've heard it twice now. Maybe I should store that in the documents. 
that 99% of what you hear is going in the recycle bin unless you fish it out later by repeating it. Now, the other key thing about our brain's recycle bin is it gets flushed out regularly. So if you don't repeat it quickly enough, then people will actually find that there's no more space in there and it's been flushed out. So this is where I would tend to say it's better to be guilty of repeating something too often than it is to not repeat it often enough. And some people don't like that, that you're repeating things too often, but I'm going to come back to Dr. John Medina. He uh, appeared on one of our podcasts recently, and he's, he's a fantastic guest. And so he will talk about uh, what he does within his training courses. I told you about these 10-minute chunks. He breaks it up in 10 minutes. Well, what he'll do afterwards is he'll come back to something that he said before and repeat it, maybe with a new example or whatever, and just make sure that he's reinforcing what they heard before and not allowing it to get stuck in the recycle bin. Um, and doing that, you can kind of build up the learning almost like uh, like a pyramid during the day, during the during the training course, rather than imagining it's like a series of bricks that you you train one after the other. You need to make sure that you're reinforcing the base at each point before you can build higher. Okay, so it is it, it is valid. We should be restating ourselves when we present, and so. Before I let you go, Phil, I, I wanted to make sure I asked you this because most of us in our day-to-day -day lives were, you know, we unfortunately have to make slides, but usually we're part of a bigger presentation. We have just one or two slides. You've got your little system that you're going to talk about or, or whatever you need to convey information on. How do you go about applying what you teach if you only have two minutes and one or two visual aids you're allowed to use. In a very short time, this is where you end up getting to the elevator pitch, right? It's to assume that you only got the time it takes to get in the elevator or lift if you're English uh, together with somebody and it's like the doors close and they say, hey, what are you working on? And you've got maybe 30 seconds to grab their interest. Two minutes is, is a luxury compared to that 30 seconds. Um, so I will tend to say, well, there are three things you need to be putting in there in that really short pr short presentation, if you like. The first one is what? What is it that they really, really need to remember a week after they met you? So you deliver that in as memorable a way as you can, but it's really, it's one thing, or it's maybe two things maximum, but it's really, it's very, very short. The second thing is, so what? Why should they care? Why should they care about what you've said? So you need to make it meaningful and important and relevant to them. If you give them the what without the so what, they'll be getting out of the elevator and it'll be like, meh, okay, well, good luck. The so what makes it relevant for them. And it's like, oh, okay, right, okay, I've got it. And then you give them the third thing, which is the what next. This is where you have the call to action. It's like, what are you working on next? What do you need them for? What approvals? What decisions do you need? What actions do you need? So if you can summarize that with a what, so what, what next, that's pretty much what you do in the conclusion of a longer presentation if you had more than two minutes. If not, well, that's what you would do. I would probably try to take 90 seconds to explain those things, at least the what and the so what, and then summarize in the last 30 seconds with, so just to summarize, that's the what. This is why you should care. This is the so what. This is what we need. That's the what next. And there's your two minutes. 
and then divide and conquer if you're part of a larger team presenting? Is this a terrible strategy? Do you risk discontinuities between styles? I mean, a lot of times I have to present with a few other people. How do you go about handling that? You prepare as a team. And this is really important. Now, preparing as a team and presenting as a team can actually work extremely well uh, because people's attention will switch off after a while. And if you imagine that people's attention is like the sand in an hourglass or an egg timer, well, sooner or later, it's going to run out. And it's not up to them to make the effort to pay attention. It's up to you as the presenter or presenters to make the effort to grab their attention and to make sure that you're resetting it, turning over that hourglass before the sand runs out. So changing presenters can be a great way to do that because as soon as there's a new presenter, that's going to reset the audience's attention. So that can work very well. Just don't do it every 20 seconds. Um, but after two, three minutes, maybe five minutes, having a new presenter can be great. What is important, however, is that you are presenting as a team so that the audience can think, okay, these people are clearly from the same company. They're clearly, assuming that they are, and maybe in this example uh, they would be. Um, so they're clearly presenting as a team. They know what each other is going to be saying. They may have their own individual style. However, it's part of an ensemble. It's kind of like, it's like a jazz group. They're, they're playing different instruments, but they're all playing at least in the same key. Um, that's important. And so rehearse as a team, prepare as a team, and make sure that you're not seeming as if you're a whole lot of different musicians who've never actually met each other before, because that generally doesn't sound very good. Phil, thank you so much for coming on. I know you, you've written multiple books, but you've got a new audio book. You've got the audio book to go along with a book you've previously written that's going to be out soon. How can folks get a hold of that? Okay, so indeed. So I uh, wrote Business Presentation Revolution uh, back in 2021. Uh, so that was a kind of <laughs> almost a pandemic project, one of many, but I'd actually been working on it for <laughs> practically 10 years and finally, finally got it out there. Um, and, uh, finally this year, my clients gave me a little bit of time off so that I could actually record the, uh, audio book. So I've got that done. It's being published, uh, like the physical book with rethink press. And, uh, by the time this podcast goes out, it should be available on Amazon and other, uh, audio book platforms. So just have a search for Wakenell, W-A-K-N-E-L-L. -L. There aren't that many Wakenells around the world. Um, and, or, or search for Business Presentation Revolution. Um, and hopefully you'll find that with its fetching orange cover. Um, and I really hope that getting a hold of this book can help you and help anybody that's listening here to make sense of presentations, to make sense of the changes we need to make in the way we present if we really want to make people want to follow us. Um, and if you can make people want to follow you and really, uh, if you can change what they believe and feel and do through the power of great communication, well, that will be a great boost to your results and to your career. So that's my promise to you. And if anyone doesn't uh, get what they find in the book, then uh, I'll be very happy to give you your money back. Awesome. Thank you so much, Phil. Appreciate the time.